Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Hum Legend series podcast where today we sat down with Memphis legend Tony Adams to discuss his time working with prominent musicians in the industry and the music he made in Memphis that makes him a legend. Enjoy. Well, you know what? Let's try this again. So okay. we, we are live at Station 8 for the Hum Podcast, the Legend series. The purpose of this podcast is to sit down with Memphis legends specifically and just document, you know, part of what has made Memphis great. There was obviously a big movement um, and it has continued to progress ever since. And it's important to acknowledge and appreciate the generations that have come before and help lay the groundwork for, you know, what we're doing and what we're doing to, to move forward with it. And uh, I think that's highlighted by the fact that Mr. Tony Adams is sitting across uh, the table from me here. Tony, how you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. So Tony is, uh, he's a, he's a, you do a lot of things. There's a lot of what you, you're making a living one way, but you're pursuing your hobbies in other ways. You get a lot of things going on. Um, and I was actually connected to you by Brad Webb, who was on our last uh, chapter of the Home Legend series, another Memphis legend. You're a Memphis legend. So let's start. Let's give people some context. Okay. Who are you? What do you do? My name is Tony Adams, and I'm a first and foremost a drummer um, slash percussionist. And I also write music, sing, but... About 30 years ago or so, I fell into doing what's called drum teching, which basically means tuning drums for other people. Mm -hmm. And speaking of drum teching, uh, Tony here just set up Station 8's drum set to perfection. Just did the sound test and everything on the mic. Sounds incredible. Not surprised. Appreciate you. Um, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, the thing about teching for me was... When I first started playing, we were kids and couldn't afford really good gear, so we had crap. How old were you? Uh, I think I was probably about 11 when I started playing. Uh, I, I was in high school band, marching band, stage orchestra, and I threw a newspaper route for about three years to get up enough money to buy a crappy used drum Three years. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Put in your work, huh? You worked for it. I did. When, when did you know? I mean, three years is a long time as a child to know, hey, I want a drum set and I'm going to work really hard and get it. How did you know that that was it for you? Well, for some reason, I always had a, a thing for drums. I, rem I remember when I was really little, my mother used to get me these, for Christmas, she would get me one of these little tin drums that I think they had paper heads or something on them and about mm -hmm. a pair of eight inch drumsticks. And I love those things. And I, for whatever reason, I have always understood drums. I, I get it. I mean, over the years I, I managed to refine tuning techniques, but, and I confuse people all the time when I tell them that, the drums tell me what's wrong with them, and they do. If you listen to them, if you know what you're listening for, it'll tell you what's wrong with it. Would it be fair to say you're a drum shaman? That's <laughs> <laughs> what it sounds like to I've, me, because you're not wrong. I've been called a lot of things. I don't think I've ever been called that. But I hey, There are never, worse things to be called, am I right? Yes, there are. I've been, probably been called those too. Uh, I've, I just think that... Uh, especially after the years I spent working in studios, 
I was a studio rat for a long time, years and years. And it that taught me critical listening and and I could tell in the studio if it was top head or bottom head, just depending upon what I was listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to mystify the engineers when I would tell somebody it's, there's one lug, maybe two out on the bottom head of that middle rack time. How does he know that? I'm listening to the drum. It, I, you know, I mean, I don't know another way to explain it to you. So you started, so you said it was 11. You were, you were playing in high school, mm-hmm. uh, high school band, like or maybe middle school band and all that moving forward. Um, when did you start jamming with other people? And because I, I want to get the story up to when you became a drum tech, because that's an interesting story in its own right. But I know you were jamming before then. I was um, in my old neighborhood, which is actually where we are now. You're kind of on the edge of it. Uh, I, I grew up uh, on Tutwiler right at Highland. Mm-hmm. And in that neighborhood, there were probably at that time six or seven good drummers that all came from the neighborhood and we all hung around each other. And it was a friendly competition, if you will. Was it friendly? It was. Somebody had a hot lick, they wouldn't show it to somebody else, but you'd watch them until you stole it. I mean, yeah. so then they had to have another hot lick. Yeah. And everybody um, traded. Yep. And, and some of them did some private, had uh, private tutors. And there was a, actually the band that Brad was in at the time had a, uh, jam house out back of one of the guys in the band's house and people would go over there and you just jam all day long everybody would trade instruments mm-hmm. you know you change drummers every other jam and just hang out that's what i grew up on and it was same the same at some other people's uh, houses that i knew and i thought my, I mean, I had no other point of reference. I thought that's the way it was everywhere, that everybody in the neighborhood just got together and jammed. And I got a rude awakening when I had left Memphis and went to Austin. <laughs> but What do you think it was about Memphis that kind of made that environment what it was? I think there were a lot of people, a lot of musicians that were just hungry. And um, most of the guys from that neighborhood actually studied what came before them. They studied uh, the the progression of blues from the Delta south of us up to Mississippi through Memphis and on up to Chicago. Um, They, as an offshoot of that, they studied the origins of rock and roll, which largely originated right here in mm-hmm. Memphis. And um, and at that time, the, the rock and roll was still on the upswing from here, uh, as was not so much the blues, and like in the 60s, the blues kind of sort of slowed down a little bit. Most of those guys went to England um, and played and turned the English guys onto it. But it became... Uh, an R and B movement here 
in Memphis, and uh, you began to have people like Stax Records mm-hmm. open up. Um, of course, uh, the old Sun label before that, and then um, which I kind of had a connection to uh, the Phillips family, but they it began to branch out more and more. Um, the rock and roll scene kind of changed in the '60s. Um, what was the funny part of it was then in the late '50s and early '60s when the blues guys went to Europe and they went to play in the UK, and the British kids loved it. And then in the '60s with the British invasion, basically they came back over here and sold us our own blues music with louder amps. <laughs> Is essentially, it turned it to 11, huh? Essentially what they did. And, I mean, people like the Stones, I'm sure Keith Richards would would say that or acknowledge that. Yeah. Was there What were the big, were there any big, I guess, influencers musically in Memphis specifically or just as a whole? Like, I'm sure the Stones were up there, but what you guys were listening to as inspiration during this time? Um, a lot of, there were a lot of people. Um, of course, the the stuff coming out of stacks and there was a lot of it then um specifically Otis Redding and the rhythm section that did probably the majority of the stack stuff um you had people like Duck Dunn Steve Cropper um i mean just some monster players mm-hmm. uh those guys i don't i don't know how much recognition i mean they were in um, other bands that pl- that toured and played, but I don't know how much national and international notoriety they got until those two guys were playing in the backup band for the Blues Brothers. Mm. And I know they really got high profile then. Um, but all of those guys, I mean, that's what we listened to. Uh, was there Was there any sort of energy when you guys were jamming together? Was there any sort of energy around making it? Or was it really just, was it just about playing or like was, cause you know, when you start getting, making it a business and you start to really try to push it in that way, it becomes something, can become something very different. So I'm wondering, cause I've known my experiences when I was that age and what was going on, but I'm wondering how was it then? Well, I didn't, I didn't think of it so much as, as looking at it as, as trying to make it. I just always had this attitude of this is who I am and this is what I do. Mm-hmm. And once I hit my 20s, I promised myself that um, if I ended up my old age broke and a, a starving musician, that I wasn't going to cry about it because it was my own decision. I mean, I could have gone... And, learn to and you loved doctor. it enough to feel that way and to be in that position? Yes. I, I, I could have gone to school and been a lawyer, been a doctor. I didn't care. When I was young, I didn't care if I had food. I didn't care about anything except the next time I got to sit down behind my drums and play. Literally, that was – and it cost, it cost me a lot. It cost me a number of relationships, um, not to mention the financial strain, but uh, – Again, I just reconciled it with myself that this is my chosen path. So I'm a big boy, 
if it comes with hard licks, they're yeah. It's, well, it's it's funny too. Like the immediate when you think of making it, the immediate thought is financial success. But sitting here across from you, and I know the way I was, I guess introduced to you before I'd actually met you was a track that Brad had that you were playing with by Mississippi Morris, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, down there. He's one of the first guys playing down on Beale. I mean, to me, you're already jamming. That's, that's before you've even moved into the later part of your life. You're already jamming and doing things that now I look back on and just see with, you know, a lot of appreciation and, you know, a lot of understanding of how incredible that was. That's making it because you're making music in a place that it matters and people that really appreciated it. And you're in, that's, that's, that's a lot of success to be, had before you've even started teching and actually, you know, paying the bills and doing what you do. And I don't know, it's funny. We always think of like that financial success, but you know, try, uh, that's the, I'd share some perspective from my end. Well, teching in the studio where, um, I teched on a lot of major label album projects, big projects. Um, and I got sort of a crash course in the music business early on because I, I got signed just before my 18th birthday to a record deal here in Memphis and kind of got a crash course in the do's and the don'ts of the music mm -hmm. business. The business and, end. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then I saw it played out and repeated with various bands on these major label album projects that would come in and most of them, I mean, and granted they're, these are kids off the street, so they have no, um, real perspective except what they've experienced. And to them being signed to a record label is, you know, they, they think that means they've made it. Right. Um, the reality is, is that it's, all it means is now you have a ticket where you can actually go to work. And the downfall of many of these guys is that they don't understand the business end of the music business. They were doing it because it was fun. Um, got them girls. Uh, they were having a good time. Uh, and it can become drudgery when you're doing it for a living if you let it be drudgery um well so for but, you when you were you said so you were 17 almost 18 who were you playing with then when you got signed lewis paul who had been uh in a band from memphis called the guillotines and he laddie hutcherson and uh, i can't remember the third guy's name they were this trio first band i ever saw that had hair to their waist <laughs> and they had a they had a regional hit called i don't believe which is still a really good song that Laddie Hutchison wrote. And Lewis um, was an amazing musician. He was a guitar player, but I don't care if you had um, a set of bagpipes laying around if it was some ocarina, he could pick it up and within 20 minutes play it. It was the most, and it goes for horns too. It was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Just an extremely talented musician, great singer, but 
there were some screws loose in there. And I think it's impossible not to. If you have that much natural talent and your brain just works that way, it, you know, it's a give and take situation. So, sort of, yes. Uh, I remember early on with Lewis, when we would get together, I would find a magazine and pick it up. And when he was talking to me, I would start reading the magazine. So I only got about half of what he was telling me so that I could kind of filter some of the nuttiness. And we ended up, we practiced somehow. We got uh, Mike Ladd, who owned Mike Ladd's Guitar City here, um, let us come in the store and practice at night. I would use one of the kits there. And uh, that led to us, ended up being signed with Jerry Phillips, who was one of Sam Phillips' son, and um, this promo guy named Eddie Braddock, who was married now to <clears throat> Linda Gale Lewis, Jerry Lee's daughter. Mm -hmm. And we did a, um, a record at the old Phillips Studios here in Memphis that Sam built when he sold Elvis his contract to RCA. Sam got a, a chunk of money. Um, by today's standards, wasn't much, but mm -hmm. it was a chunk in those days. And he built his own studio, which in its day, it was a high-tech place. That was the first studio I saw that had ISO booths for amps, oh, you know, wow. ISO cabinets for amps. Um, and the uh, what was the B room in there the last session that Elvis did in there, they just, when they got done, they closed the door and locked it. All of the instruments were still sitting in there and they would, we would go in to record and they would let us in the B room so we could walk in, look around and they'd lock us in the studio. We'd sit in there and play music all night and made a record for a subsidiary of Stax uh, at that time. That was my first real recording experience. And the first day of that, uh, the, it, Phillips was undergoing a transformation. They had just come out with these new 24 track consoles and they'd had one installed, but it wasn't, they weren't done with it yet. And there were wires hanging out the back and Jerry was having a problem pulling up drum sounds. So I'm out in, in the big room on a kit and I see Sam Phillips walk in and he shoes Jerry out of the chair, sits down and hits talk back and says, drummer, lay your wallet on that snare. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's what you say. Yes, yes, sir, <laughs> Mr. Phillips. So I put my wallet on the snare. All right, let me hear you kick. All right, snare. All right, first rack. All right, floor time. And then inside of three minutes, we had drum sounds. And that's what went on the record. So that was my initial. So how long was that project? How long were you playing with them? And how long were you, and what were you doing? Like once you were signed, you recorded there, did you tour it on it? Like how did, what all did you do with it? I didn't. And, and before we actually, we got started on the, on the project. And I kind of got a little less than amused because 
the the label was taking care of Lewis and nobody else. Mm-hmm. And so I ended At all? up no. And I ended up my girlfriend at the time, we ended up moving to Texas. And they called me in Texas and said, look, we really want you to come back, finish this record. So I reached a deal and I said, look, just release me from the contract and we'll do this as session work. So they flew me back to Memphis. I went in and finished the record. And then I, I don't know anything about the touring after it because I didn't, I didn't do it. Why'd you move to Texas? Well, my girlfriend at the time, who ended up eventually being my my wife, my first wife, we knew we were either going to go to Atlanta, where she had lived before, mm-hmm. or go to Austin. And we decided to go to Austin because we knew one person there. <laughs> you know, Austin—that's like it's becoming the new LA, the new New York. It's uh, biggest venture capitalist city in the country. It's wild. A lot yeah, of money there. Yeah, it wasn't that way when I when I was there. It, yeah. it still had a there was a music scene there, um, but when you went downtown in the summertime, when UT let out, it was like a ghost town. Hmm. I was driving home from a band rehearsal one time. I'm on Congress Avenue, right downtown. Stopped at a light and look over, and on the corner there's a coyote sitting there, downtown Austin, and. Um, I, I was in a, ended up being in a, a 10 piece horn band there. Okay. So you did play some music down there. Oh yeah. The, uh, the horn section was from the UT lab ensemble and we played all over the Southwest, all uh, as far up as Colorado. Um, and that was where I learned to actually work and kick a horn section. I was was in that band, which helped me because um, at one point we we were friends uh, uh, with another band that was a group called the Techniques Four, which was like the kind of like the Temptations, four guys mm, standing okay. up up front that you know had dance routines and sang, and they were coming back from a gig in in Colorado and they're. Winnebago went off the side of a mountain and destroyed the band's gear and broke the drummer's back. Oh my gosh. So um, the band that I was in went out as their backup bands and having worked with the horn section actually helped me with that because you'd have to kick the dance steps mm-hmm. just like a horn section with that. Uh, and at, at some point then we decided we were going to Leave there, leave Texas, and go to Atlanta. Okay, I knew you went to Atlanta, so this must be how old were you at this time? This was. I was probably 22 or 23 when I moved to Atlanta. And I was in Atlanta for a long time. Uh, I, I actually stopped playing for a while and then gradually got back into playing and ended up being in a few bands in Atlanta, played played all over the Southeast, uh, and did more studio work there. I did a little bit when I was in Austin with the horn band, but that was about the extent of the studio stuff I did there. 
most of my experience in the studios came in Atlanta. Yeah. So what, what point did, uh, how did you become a drum tech in Atlanta? Cause that's where it started more or less, right? Yes. Uh, when I first moved to Atlanta, one of the first musicians I met there was a guitar player named Rick Meyer. And ultimately, Rick ended up owning a, a place called Triclop Studios, which was a Neve and Studer analog studio, and did a bunch of records. Uh, first Matchbox 20 record was mm. done there. First Seven Dust record was done there. Um, Warren Haynes' first solo record was done there. Hole lived through this. There were there were a bunch of records that were done in that room. And when Rick had that, he called me one day and said, "Look, I had to fire some guys. They were I caught them partying after the with girls in here after the studio was closed." And he said, "I fired them. Can you come help me answer the telephone?" So, I, okay. So, I went. I'm in the office up front answering telephones. And one day, one of the engineers came in, stuck his head in and said, hey, you know how to change your head on a drum and tune it, don't you? Yeah. So I went out, and then that led to, um, actually, it was during uh, Smashing Pumpkin Siamese Dream was cut there, too. And Butch Vig was the producer, and Butch was actually a... a a good drummer, and Butch would tune the kit, and he, they called me in one day, and I said, Butch is out here on the kit, and he can't figure out what's going on. So I went in the control room, and he's going around the drums, and this is a classic case in point when I, I'm listening, and I hit talk back until I'm Butch at the middle rack. Tom's got a couple of lugs out, one or two lugs out on the bottom head. He went right to it, found them, corrected it, and they're all looking at me like I had two heads. <laughs> So then they started calling me in there more and more, come in here and listen to this, come in here and listen to this. And then Rick Meyer began to promote me to people and the projects would come in, you really need to get this guy to do your drums for you. So that's when I realized, oh, you mean they'll pay me to do this? <laughs> 30 years later. <laughs> yes. Um, well, so how was it, how was it going from, I guess, being, you know, at that point, was it, so how old were you when that happened? I was in my thirties. Yeah. So you've, 30s. you've been jamming, you know, 15 plus years at this point as a musician, how was the transition going from spending, I guess, more of the time and more of the focus teching, supporting and making the studio happen as opposed to playing the drums? Well, to was me, it difficult? it, it, no, it wasn't difficult. To me, it was a natural thing because it, it, there was really no sea change for me. I looked at it like this, especially in light of what I told you about guys signing record deals. Because some of the bands would come in and the, guy, and the people would be miserable. You know, the record label would be making them miserable. And I saw it like this. My career's not on the line on this record being a hit. I want to make a good record because my name's going to be on it. You know, my part, I want it to be good, but if it flops, I'll be working tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And it was still messing 
with drums, which was something I loved. And especially, it was with some producers, it was never boring. Um, Matt Serletic was a case in point. And you never, Matt had a master's in music and he had the ears of a bat. So first of all, you had to be on your toes. You didn't slide any bull by Matt because he could hear it. And second of all, he had a just a limitless imagination and you never knew what he would ask you for. I mean, and he would come to me sometimes and sing some noise. I need something that does this. Okay. Uh, give me a minute. And what I would do is go out in the room and I'd put together like four things. You know, All right, let me hear what you got. How about this? No. How about this? No. How about this? That's it. And people would used to quiz me and say, you know, how can I get into drum tech and we'll be able to tune first? But stuff like that. Makes sounds. I don't know how to tell you to think on your feet because I was making it up as I went along. I mean, you know, especially with Matt. If Matt came to me one day and said, I need you to paint the kit purple and hang it from the ceiling. Give me a minute. I know he's going somewhere. Do you feel like just drum teching in these situations, do you feel like it got you good opportunities to play again, though? I mean, it just seems like naturally you're going to be playing with people throughout this process. Or was it really like heads down teching? No, well, some of both. And sometimes it was really weird. Um, the single weirdest night I've ever had in the studio was uh, on the first Matchbox record. And it was near the end of it. I'm going to tell tales out of school here. When we got started, Matt wasn't too happy. Um, and he sent the engineer to me about the third day in and asked, he said, Matt wants to know if you'll play drums on this record. And I said, you know, I would love to, but you're asking me to commit professional suicide here because I don't have a Hollywood agent. I live solely by word of mouth and you hired me as a tech, not as a player. And you bump a guy off his own record. Last thing I need is some guy out there telling people, don't hire this guy, he'll snake your gig. So I turned Matt down. He wasn't real happy about that. So flash forward. That's, 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 that's a hard choice, though. It had to be. How, how long did you sit with that one? Was it pretty instantaneous? That seems really tough. I mean. Well, I would have loved to have done it, but. You had respect for the situation. It, the it was the involved. truth. It was the truth. Mm -hmm. And I had, I had similar instances crop up later on, and I've always avoided that. I don't want to. I'm not going to sit there and try to take some guy's gig. That's when they hire me as a tech, I have one job and that's to make that guy look and sound as good as possible. Period. That's what, that's what I'm being paid for. And so flash forward to the end of the, near the end of the matchbox record. And we have a song called back to good. And 
Matt said, I want to do something different on this. He said, I want to put a kit in the ISO booth. So I had more of my old kits, an old Rogers kit in the studio. So I said, well, I'm going to go set my Rogers kit up. I set it up, I tweak it. And he, while I'm in there, he plays me the demo for the song, which was Rob at a piano playing back to good. I'm like, okay, I'm going to listen to art. So, and he said he wanted this to be played with hot rods. Okay, fine. I got it ready. They send the drummer around. He goes in and he's struggling playing with the hot rods. He's, he's struggling. And I see Matt slumping in his chair. I said, let me go see if he's doing something mechanically that I can help him with. You know, if maybe he's just holding them funny or whatever. So I go around. I'm in the ISO booth with the drummer. And it's not that he's doing anything mechanically wrong. He just is struggling to do it. And in, honest, in fairness to him, he had gotten the mumps and oh. had gone home and had been sick and had just come back trying to finish this record. The label's yelling at Matt every day. They want this record done. Uh, and he was just struggling. Well, we're both in the ISO booth. The door opens. Matt comes in. And he looks at the drummer and says, we're out of time. We're over budget. We've already got this. I recorded Tony playing when I played him the demo in here. Because I, I was at the kit, and he said, I want to hear how the hot rods sit to this song. So he played me that. I didn't know the song. He played me the demo. So I listened to it, find the groove. And when I fell in, so all I could do is play the groove. Well, Matt recorded that, took the part where I fell in, and that's now the intro to Back to Good, and, and just looped me mm -hmm. through the song. Well, when he did that, the first thought through my mind was, I wanted to be anywhere else on this planet but in that little room because Paul, the drummer's face fell. He got up, jumped up from behind the kid and took off. I looked at Matt, you know, thanks. You know, that's, this was a straight ambush and I get, I get his motivation. I understand and everything but still. Yeah. So I had to chase Paul down in the kitchen and, and I told him, look, I got ambushed just like you did. I didn't know this. Long story short, that incident actually made Paul end up trusting me even more. Mm -hmm. So later on then, when I ended up going out touring with them, and that record broke, it broke really hard. And I was still trying to stay in the studios, but with the advent of Pro Tools, the the writing was on the wall, so to speak. Everybody and their brothers were going to start becoming a producer in their mom's basement. And the, unless I wanted to move to LA, then the big label projects, like I was used to working on, were going to start getting slim. So the record was breaking really hard and Matchbox called me and said, look, this record is breaking hard. Can you come out? We're going to do the Tonight Show. Just come make sure the drums are right. Okay. So I go out there. And then it was David Letterman to make sure they're right. 
Then it was, well, look, there's a record still breaking hard. Uh, 30-day key city tour. Just come help us on this. These are key markets. Huh? Okay. Well, that 30-day key city tour, about 23 months later, we were getting ready to go back around the world, go back to Australia. And I said, boys, I love you, but people in the studio are starting to forget my phone number. So I, I went home, but up until, I mean, I was two years of touring with them, and Paul trusted me completely because of that incident in the studio, which was really weird at first. Mm-hmm. So did you continue, to, I guess at this point, when did you go back to Memphis? Because you're in Atlanta, you start gigging, you're, you're, and then you're out on tour uh, doing that. And this is, I mean, building a relationship like that too comes from being genuine, by the way, and just having good integrity and being a, being a person that is, uh, you know, there's not a lot of those that has those qualities. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a lot, I'm sure back then, but I tell you what, it's definitely, it's slim pickings these days, but... But so, I mean, it's, it's just not often that you find, you know, that level of integrity in people and folks, you know, and it's, it's cool because not every musician, especially is going to be like, Oh yeah, I'm not going to be on that record, even though they're asking me directly. And it could be a huge opportunity for me. I think it's more important to respect the person that's already there. Like what an incredible thing. Well, that's got to be acknowledged first. It, I appreciate that. <laughs> it, it just, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I mean, now, and I'm from Memphis and I don't have a problem with a good old-fashioned head-cutting session. You want to go out and we'll see who can smoke who. I'm fine with that. But this was, I was looking at this as I was going to approach, I was being paid to tech. To me, if you're being paid to do X, then you do X, do X. professionally. Mm -hmm. And You respect the order of, of command and how it's supposed to be. Structure, consistency. Especially when I was trying to build a career out of it, and yeah. I and I knew when I when I went home from the Matchbox tour, I was going to say, I mean, it worked out. I well, I went independent then. I was no longer working at at Triclops, and that was a scary thing because keep I, this mic close. I was sitting there, there thinking, is my phone going to ring? And it did, and invariably. Um, again, I had no Hollywood agent, mm -hmm. so I lived and died by word of mouth. And drummers that I worked for in the studio would recommend me to other drummers. Engineers and producers that I worked with would either call me back for another project or recommend me to somebody else. So um, it was at that point when I was freelancing like that that – I had to make a trip back to Memphis for my mother's funeral. My mother died. Mm. So I came back and while I was here, I talked to Brad and he said, come by the studio. We got to record something because we, God only knows when we'll see. Is this his studio? Yes. Yeah. So you can hear him talk about that in our last podcast. <laughs> he and, talks all about the studio starting yep. it. Um, and so I went over and we cut a couple of things and then, when I went back to Atlanta, we kept talking. And as me being independent for, for record projects, I realized that it kind of didn't matter where I lived 
because the majority of the time, the record, I mean, in Atlanta, there were some records that were done in Atlanta and so, some stuff, local stuff that I would work on. But by and large, I might get a call, might have to go to New York, Boston, L.A., wherever. And so it really didn't matter where I lived, you know, if I was going to go do a, a record project somewhere. So that's when I... I I started commuting back and forth and writing with Brad. We started writing and recording more and more. And then when I moved back here to start a project with him in the Pocket Rockets, which we ended up going and getting Blind Mississippi Morris off his sofa <laughs> and, and took him down to Beale Street. And we played on Beale for years. Um, People used to come for all from all over the world. They'd go to Bill Street. Oh yeah, Bill Street in Memphis. Oh yeah, and they'd come and they'd hear us playing. Go, where are you guys from? <laughs> right here, right here. We grew up here. And so when you came back and you started jamming again, did you fall right back into the roots like you did when you were jamming over at Brad's house in the in the back back room or whatever? You know, growing up, was it seamless? It was like giving a junkie a fix. <laughs> but now I had, I'd had an education mm -hmm. in recording. Um, I mean, I had good fortune to work with some really good producers and some just monstrous engineers. I got to look over their shoulders and steal tricks, you know, or have them explain stuff to me. Um, and really got my eyes opened in in how the studio works and the recording process works. And working on as many albums as I did, I knew what was involved in making a record, start to finish. And I say that despite some crazes that the record industry went through, there for a while mm -hmm. like normally on a record project you come in and you track all the drums first you put down scratch tracks you track all the drums and then you go to overdub mode and you record bass then you put guitars and keys and you overdub until you have the final thing and then it gets mixed Somebody started this little trend for a while of going what's called doing what's called go song by song, which means they come in and they set up and they record and they stay on one song until that one song is finished. Well, you exponentially explode your studio budget doing that because you've got so much time going out and tearing down, yeah, break down and set up, striking deer that gear and mics from this to now this instrument. And then you got to start it all over again for the next song. And I, I, I never did understand how any producer ever went along with that. But it, it was a thing for a while. It was the dumbest thing I'd ever seen. But a lot of people did it. I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> well, so where, where are you now in your career? Um, well, staying with the tech thing... Um, which it turns out pays the bills 
pretty well. Um, I had avoided Nashville for a long time. Yeah, it's kind of the, the, the arch enemy in some ways, right? Of well, well, because I had always knew that that knew it from a studio rat's perspective, and I knew that the studios in Nashville are is a real click, and it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew it was a tough nut to crack. Um, and I had been working with a band called Alter Bridge, which was Creed with get three of the guys from Creed and Miles Kennedy on vocals. And I started with them because I had worked with Creed on the Weathered CD and they called me day one of Alter Bridge and said, hey, do you want to work on this project? I'm like, yeah. I went and heard the band. Like, yes, I do. <laughs> um, so I worked for Alter Bridge for 10 years and I watched a, a sorry guys, a number of mistakes made, that were made um, between business decisions between them and the label. Um, and I, I, I was marveling because I'm thinking, you guys were one of the biggest bands on the planet. You know, you should have paid better attention, I would think, but it's not my job drum tech to, to tell them you know, you're screwing up but after 10 years and we would go to Europe all the time these guys would play crap gigs in the US go to Europe and, and play enormous festivals yeah. uh, they were hugely popular in mainland Europe in the UK and come here and it's like, who? And after 10 years of doing this, they had worked their way up to work in one month, my final year with them. And I'm like, you guys are killing me. I mean, and there was, you know, there was no retainer. Yeah. So, Everybody that knew me as a studio rat for the 10 years I was with him, they're thinking, they're thinking well, between Creed and Alterbridge, he's working all the time. They just quit calling me. So I started throwing lifelines out. And somebody happened to answer from Nashville, somebody I'd worked okay. with before. And it was a person who was doing front of house for Luke Bryan. And he said, listen, I'm, let me talk to management here. So he pitched me to management. And they brought me to Nashville. I went out and I kind of got, kind of got the third degree. You have a meeting, you have a meeting with Luke's manager. She's a real sweetheart. It turns out. I'm sure. Um, and had to have a meeting with the tour manager. who's also a sweetheart. Just, he doesn't seem that way to a lot of people, but, and apparently I passed because now I'm, and it's been eight years with Luke. Eight years. Yes. So eight more. What are you thinking? You gonna do this forever? No. <laughs> no. Because you're still making music too. I am making music, and and I know Brad came over yesterday, and you're jamming with him still. I mean, you got you got plenty of stuff going on. I I am, but 
this road dog stuff. I mean, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And I couldn't tell by looking at you. You look good. You should see it from this <laughs> side. The, <laughs> the writing's on the wall for this at some point. I mean, I'm out running right now with <clears throat> guys in their 20s and 30s doing this, and I can do it, but I know it's not going to last forever. Sure. So, got to take care of yourself. My wife and I are trying to work towards retirement now. And you got a nice, quiet piece of land down south across the border. I do. And that's in Mississippi, not Mexico. Yes. Clarification. Yes. <laughs> um, it's the Memphis border. The everybody says, but you got a killer drum room at your house. No, no, I do not. It's quiet at my house. <laughs> it's quiet. I the like irony. It. I like it like that. Um, yeah, we have five acres in Mississippi and it's, um, there's no shortage of stuff to do there. I mean, we took a piece of land and have 60 to 70 trees in an orchard in the front yard and a 3000 square foot garden in the back. Mm. So you grow your own food. A lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's, that seems like a, like a perfect place to, to, you know, have, have your life now. Get it, it all set up. You got what you want. You can, I mean, it seems like your future is self-determined. You can kind of make your own choices. That's pretty much what we all want, right? Well, I want to do another few years with Luke mm -hmm. um, just because it's fun um, and give credit where it's due. The people that I work with are all really good. Uh, Luke's drummer is a straight monster and is one of the sweetest people on the planet. And Luke is a gem. I wouldn't trade this job for all the whiskey in Scotland. And if you know me, you know. That's that. a big, big statement to yes. make. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, Luke, what you see on TV, the only difference between Luke, that Luke and the Luke in real life is he's a lot funnier in, in real life. You just got more time to say it. He does. And, yeah. and he can say some stuff that people might look at, you know, askant. Well, uh, this day and age is kind of, you know, the standards for that are a little bit different than they used to be, right? It's hard to say anything, get away with it. Well, it is, but I, I don't mean, I don't mean in a, in a bad way. Um, we have on the, on the set, there are microphones around each player's position with a talk button on it so that they can talk to us, everybody that has in-ears in, talk to the crew, um, you know, to say, hey, I need more of me in my mix or whatever they need. And Luke has one too. About, about my third or fourth show, Luke, I'm, I'm still new guy. And it was a long time since I've been a new guy in a crew. Uh, comes running back to the mic after the first song and he got a stage seven stalker alert. And I'm like, what does that mean? What's that? And I'm like, damn, I got to look for a guy in a gun, with a gun in the crowd or what are we looking for? And I go do another two or three songs and Luke comes running back and he goes, I'm not kidding, boys. If she had a deer rifle, my head would be on her wall right now. <laughs> I'm so 
man, I've been scanning the crowd, <laughs> looking for something. Like You're stressing some, out. Yes. Um, because I, I mean, there's been some wacky stuff on the road. Yeah, I have no doubts. So, well, I I know I, we could just keep talking, but I feel like we got to wrap this up at some point. And I think before we do. I would love for you to share. This is all Memphis made. This is about what makes Memphis great. Uh, how do you feel Memphis has really contributed and, and, and enhanced your journey through life musically and beyond? Um, Memphis was the start of, of opening my eyes. M Memphis gave me uh, the impetus to, to want to start playing music listening to stuff that was from here. Mm -hmm. um, that's what got me originally interested. And then, of course, my horizons began to broaden around the world. Uh, but the original thing was from here. And there is a, a you can't touch it. You can't. Smell it, you can't taste it, but there is a Memphis thing. Um, people I played with in Atlanta, somebody they, they, when they a, hear you're from Memphis. They made a comment the other day about well, somebody sent me a track and they said, Is this you on this track? I can't remember. Oh, no, it's not me. He goes, I didn't think so. I didn't have that Memphis thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I so love it. It's it, it is a real thing. And and I love that. There's a there's a bad side to everything, but uh, the the positive is what I took and ran with to whatever extent I've run. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I can say it's pretty far. I know just just meeting you and knowing knowing what I've heard and hearing your music and knowing the projects. Now I didn't a lot of what you shared today. I didn't know knowing your background and all the work that you put into music and just, you know, continuing the efforts that Memphis started. I have to say, thank you. You know, it's, it's thank important. You, it's important work. Uh, it, it's been fun. Yeah. Um, you know, you get to be my age and you start looking back and you, you began to review things mm -hmm. and there were a couple of things I would have done a little smarter had I Just known a couple? better. Yes. <laughs> well, I got more than a couple. But, I got a little while to go from your age. Well, a lot, a lot of the things I did that were not really smart. I'd probably do it again anyway. Yeah. Just because it was fun. I mean, well, so it makes you who you are, right? Exactly. You're pretty proud of that. I'd say I, I'm comfortable yeah. with it. And you should be. <laughs> well, listen, Tony, thank you, man. Thank you. I appreciate bro. you. Cheers. All right, brother. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, if you want to check out any of our other content, you can visit our website at station8productions.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash station8productions. Thanks.